When I have time, uh, one of my favorite ways to relax is to watch a movie. Um, I'm kind of at that stage of life, though, right now, just with the busyness. By the time the kids get in bed, it can be late before I get to start a movie. It's like, if it's 9 o'clock, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, because 9.30, my head's just going to be starting to do this uh, on the couch. And so it's like, if I can, I'll watch a movie, but it doesn't happen too often. But that's one of my favorite ways, just kind of take it easy. Now, maybe you're more cultured, you're more refined than I am. And so you go to the theater and, and plays, and that's, it's pretty good, but I, I'm kind of a movie guy myself. But, but regardless of which one you prefer, and often we don't go alone, if we go with somebody, here's the question you're going to ask them, or they'll ask you as you're leaving the, the theater. It's this, so what did you think? What did you think? And, and you start talking about your favorite parts, your favorite scenes. Um, and and our, these scenes, they have this ability to just kind of make us feel good um, or, or to reminisce or, or just to like teach us these truths. Like my son Seth and I, we've been watching uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+. Plus. I'm, I'm a Star Wars nerd. I'm introducing my, my son to this and, and he's, he's loving it as well. But we watched the finale this past week and in, I'm not going to ruin it for those of you who haven't watched it. I highly recommend it though. Um, but in the finale, there, there's this scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi, he strikes this pose and like for me, it was like, oh, there's the feelings. There's, there's Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's, he's back and is like, I, I loved that. Now, humans, we've always loved stories. We love to tell stories. Think about like when you get together with friends or family that you haven't seen for the first time or for a long time. You sit around the dinner table or wherever it is and you swap stories. You reminisce. You, you talk about things that have taken place. And again, it, it's, it's just like there's something significant that takes place with stories. And Jesus knew this, and so this is why he often taught through stories. And a lot of the, um, the things that we're looking at in our summer series through Luke uh, chapter 16 through 19 is Jesus telling these stories. Now in Luke chapter 16, which is where we're going to be, if you have your Bible, you can open up there. Jesus tells a story in which he takes the entire human experience and he kind of puts it into two scenes. Now, Jesus isn't going to ask, okay, what was your favorite scene in the story I told? But the question he wants you to ask is this, which scene are you living for? Which scene are you living for? And so starting in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus says, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Now this is scene one. And in scene one, we're introduced to a rich man who dresses like in the latest fashions. He, he's always looking good in his clothing. And, and this is in a culture where people would work six days a week and they were doing well if they got to eat meat maybe once a week. They, they were doing all right. Now this rich man... Like, he goes to the grocery store. We know kind of what this is like right now. You, like, walk up to the cash register. You're like, oh, man, what's, what's the damage this time? And this guy would just be like, eh, doesn't really matter. He has no concerns because he's wealthy, what that grocery bill would be. And so every day, not just holidays and special occasions, he's, he's dressing well and he's eating well. He's got a good life. But there's another man that's introduced in scene one. 
It's a poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus basically lives pretty much on the front man's porch outside of his gate. And the only thing that Lazarus has in this story that the rich man doesn't have is a name. And so Lazarus is poor. During high school, I, I, for those three years, I worked at Wendy's Restaurant. Um, that, that's what I did kind of like after school on the weekends and during summer. It was flipping burgers, cooking fries. Um, but one of the things we would have to do during our shift was you'd go out to the dining room with a, a, a dustbin and a broom. And you'd go to the tables and you would sweep up what kids had dropped, the, the half-eaten nuggets, the French fries. And it was like, it looks great when it goes out onto the table on the tray. And then when you see what's on the floor, you're like, that is disgusting. Why would people ever eat this food? Um, what Jesus is saying is this. The, the, the Lazarus, this poor guy, would look at what's in that dustbin and he'd go, that looks good enough to eat. Like, we don't understand that type of hunger. Most of us have never been that hungry to kind of look at the compost pile and go, I, I would eat that. But this is what this man is going through, that Lazarus is hungry. Lazarus, he's not sporting brand name clothing. Jesus says what Lazarus wears is open sores, which means he's got some sort of disease. So Lazarus is sick. But think about this. Lazarus is poor, so he can't afford treatment for sickness. Because Lazarus is sick, he can't really work to afford the food and the treatment that he needs. And so he's probably kind of trapped in this vicious cycle that he can't escape from. And so Lazarus is, is poor, he's sick, he's hungry, he's weak. But it's not just that. Jesus says that the dogs, they come and they lick his wounds. And like, this isn't like friendly old Rover or Fido who lives in the house who eats high-end dog food is just coming over to say hi to Lazarus. No, like these are wild, unclean street dogs. It, they're dangerous. And they just, they come and they lick his sores. And, and so like, this is, this is what Lazarus is encountering. He's vulnerable. Maybe it's not that he can't keep the dogs away. It's just like, he's like, why bother? They're, they're just gonna come back. And so this poor, hungry, sick, and vulnerable Lazarus lives his miserable life in the shadow of the rich man's mansion. But then there is a scene change in Jesus' story. And so scene two, Luke 16, verses 22 to 31 it says, finally, the poor man died. And I think there's something in that word. Finally, the poor man died. That his misery was finally over. And he was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. And he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides... There's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross from over there to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, 
If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And so scene one in this story is in this world. It's this life. But then it transitions to scene two, which is in kind of the afterlife, the, the next world. And given Lazarus's kind of situation in scene one, it doesn't seem like he had family or friends to kind of really care for him. He's he's not in a good spot, but nobody seems to care. And so when he dies, it says he's not buried. What does that mean? His body is probably taken to the local dump and it's tossed there. But the rich man, he also dies, but he's buried. And it's probably in this beautiful tomb and his his ceremony is one with um, pomp and and, and a lot of ceremony surrounding it. But here's the thing, something unexpected happens. In scene two, the two men's situations are completely reversed. Like Lazarus is in heavenly glory and, and, and then the rich man, he's, he's suffering. He's in torment, he's in flames that Lazarus is comforted and the poor man, or the rich man, sorry, he's suffering. And as a Jewish person, like when you get to the afterlife, like kind of go with me on this because it's here. It says the, the Lazarus is where Abraham is. Now, if you're a Jewish person, it's like, you get to the afterlife, you're going to go, okay, is Abraham here? Is, is a, oh, Abraham's here. Okay, I'm where I want to be. This is good. Because if you get to the afterlife and it's like, Abraham's not here. This is not good. Because Abraham is God's guy. He's Father Abraham. And so like, Lazarus is where he wants to be. For the rich man, something has gone wrong. And in most translations, it says that the rich man finds himself in Hades. And in scripture, Hades is this place where the wicked dead go to await final judgment. It's it's a place of justice and torment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it describes that, that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire or hell after the final judgment by Jesus is complete. And so it's kind of saying this, that if you're in Hades, The final destination is hell. Now, amongst biblical scholars, there's debate on this this scripture. They're going, is this a parable, which Jesus has concocted a story, but he's, he's teaching through it, or is Jesus actually recounting something that took place, that this is something true? Now, there is something odd here, that the rich man and Lazarus, or sorry, the rich man and Abraham, have a conversation. And it's this, this conversation after death. Now, nowhere else in scripture is there any indication that there's gonna be personal communication between those who are in heaven and those who are in hell. So I wanna say, like, let's not read too much into that one. And, and that fact alone, that kind of makes me lean towards this is, this is a parable that Jesus has, has kind of made up to teach something important. But even if this is a parable, Jesus is teaching us important things through it. And so here are four truths that I want to look at quickly that Jesus teaches in this story about life after death. The first one is this, that the standards of this world will not persist in eternity. Like the Jewish people had this understanding that if you were wealthy and life was good for you here, as man, you were blessed, you were favored by God. But if you were, if you were poor, if you were sick, you were cursed by God. And Jesus takes this idea and he, he turns it on its head. 
In the story, the guy who finishes in first place by earthly standards, like, man, the rich man, he has it all. It looks like life has gone well for him, but he comes in last place in this story. Then you've got Lazarus, who was in dead last in this world. And then in this story, it looks like he's come in first place. And this is one of these stories where, where Jesus is illustrating what he talks about. It's like, you know what? Those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled. Those who are humbled or those who are low are going to be exalted. Now, many of the people who were listening to Jesus' story that day, they are the oppressed. They are the poor. They are the sick. They are the ones who this world has taken advantage of. And so they hear this story, and man, this is a story of hope for them. Because what Jesus is saying is this, that you're seen too. It doesn't have to look like you're seen one. And this is a story of hope for, for many of us today. Like, I, I don't know everybody's story, but here's what I know, that there are people within this congregation, man, scene one has not been easy. It's, it's been full of challenges and difficulty and heartache, and there might be sickness going on right now, and there's loss, and there's oppression, and we could keep going, and we're going, scene one hasn't been that great. But what Jesus would say to you is, you know what, your scene two doesn't have to look like your scene one. Jesus said, you know what, one day your pain, the suffering, the difficulty that you're feeling, that can end. And, and the life that you long for, this, this homesickness that you've never had fulfilled, but you, you feel it there, that there's something more. He's saying you can find that with God in eternity one day. But he's also issuing this warning. He's, he's kind of saying this, like, even though somebody's had it great in scene one, and they've had everything that they could ever want, and it's been awesome, he's going, that doesn't mean that's going to continue into scene two or into eternity. Because one of the things that, that we see in scripture is that our, our future destiny is not decided by the things that we've accumulated in this life and how great things have happened for us right now in this world. We're, we're, we're showed that our future destiny, it's, it's determined by the things we do, primarily what we decide to do with Jesus Christ. Do we call him Lord and Savior or not? That, that's kind of the big question that determines everything. Now, another thing that Jesus teaches in this story is this, that the lost are in torment. Now, a lot of people resist the idea of, of Hades or hell because it's not a pleasant thing to think about people suffering. Like C.S. Lewis, he said, if there was one doctrine I could rid Christianity of, it would be hell. But he's going like, I really can't do it because it's, it's there in scripture. And our resistance to hell or Hades, it's, it's based mostly off the fact that we just don't like it. It's not a comforting thought to think about people suffering for eternity. But we've talked about this being repelled by an idea, this idea of, of justice and punishment and suffering it's not enough to prove that it's, it's not true. All it does is prove is we just don't happen to like that idea. We don't like that thought. But here in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is affirming the doctrine of hell. Like the rich man says he's thirsty and it's implied that there's nothing he personally can do to quench his thirst. So he's going like, send Lazarus here to, to, to quench my thirst. And there's something in this. Like hell, it exposes this lie that humanity insists on believing, that we've continued to believe since the Garden of Eden. You know what? We don't need God. 
that we can go without God and we'll, we'll be just fine. In James chapter 1, verse 17, though, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from God, our Father, that it comes down from him. And we got to realize that when you separate yourself from the source of all that is good and all that is perfect, you're going to be left with only bad things. Like right now, every person, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're a, a good person or a bad person, like we're living under what is called God's common grace. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, there's this verse where Jesus says, you know what, God causes his sun to shine upon the evil and the good, that his rains fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, which what Jesus is talking about here is common grace, is that God gives good things to all people right now. But hell or Hades is this place where you remove the common grace of God. The blessings and the comforts that he provides to all of us, they just, they don't exist all the things that we, we enjoy here, and there are things often we go, okay, I've worked hard for this. I deserve it. Those are removed. They're no longer there. That God's goodness, God's grace, his provision, they're absent. And it's going to be noticeable. And it's going to be felt. Like, s- some people have this idea. Like, they're not, they're going, I'm not a huge fan of God all the rules and all the things he asked me to do. And so it's like, if heaven's where God is, I don't really care to be where God is. And they have this idea that hell is going to be this free-for-all. It's, it's going to be kind of enjoyable. Some will be like, I'll just kind of, me and Satan will be, will be best buds. We'll be hanging out and enjoying the whole thing. But nowhere in scripture do you get this idea that Satan rules over hell. That, that hell is actually this, where Satan is punished. It's the culmination of his defeat by God. Hell is this place where final justice is accomplished. Now, if you have your Bible, I really want you to turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, because this is an important verse when we're talking about this subject. Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus says, Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And and so if you mark your Bible up, maybe you have an electronic one, you can highlight it. I would say circle, highlight, underline these words. Prepared for the devil and his demons. Those are important words because what it's telling us is that God did not prepare hell for people. That he did not design it for them. That he, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels who followed him in, in his rebellion against God. That Satan wanted to be God, and it was like, okay, that's, that's rebellion. But when we are like, I'm going to follow Satan in that type of rebellion where it's going, I don't need you, God. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, you end up where that type of rebellion ends up, which is hell. Again, C.S. Lewis, he, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And what Lewis is saying is this. If you reject God and you truly want life without him, God is going to be like, okay, I will honor that request. I will give you what you think you want. But it's not going to be what you think it is. Hell is the natural outcome. Like the rich man, he dedicated his life to the pursuit of pleasure the pursuit of good things, 
but not ultimate things, not eternal things. And he got it wrong. Now back to Luke chapter 16, verse 25. Again, I want you to look there because what, what does Jesus through Abraham say to this rich man while he's suffering in hell? Does, does he yell at him? Does he go, you sinner, you evildoer? Does he mock him? Does he go, you're just getting what you deserve? Now, what does he say in verse 25? He says, son. He says, child. That's a term of endearment. that's, That's a term of love and care. And every person, even those who end up eternally separated from God, they are loved by God. That hell is not something God delights in. God does not relish the idea that people are going to be in hell. And we shouldn't relish that idea either. In John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, Jesus says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And so what Jesus is saying is this, that God has sent his son into the world to rescue us, to save us from the the consequences of our sin, of our rebellion against him, so that we would not have to suffer God's wrath on sin. And if you have not accepted that invitation, that invitation which we call the gospel, the good news, that you can be forgiven, that you can be reconciled back to God, that we we make that invitation every week. You can speak to me, you can fill out a connect card at the Welcome Center or on halifaxchristianchurch.ca and somebody will follow up with you to talk about what it means to give your life to Christ. Now another thing that Jesus story teaches us is this, that death ends our opportunity for somebody can pass from heaven to Hades. In other words, Jesus is teaching this, that the fate of the dead is irreversible, that when a person dies, there's no second chance. There will be no reversal of the fate, that death brings a finality. Like I I remember it was January 26, 2020, and I was uh, sitting on the couch at my in-laws and it just popped up on my phone that Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi had been killed in a helicopter crash. And I just remember, it was just kind of one of these surreal moments. It was one of these sobering moments. And for some reason, the death of celebrities kind of does that to me because it's this reminder. It's like, you know what? It doesn't matter how much money you have or fame or power or just kind of what access you have to the greatest technology and treatments that is out there. It's like, eventually death is going to come for you. Unless Christ returns, like you can't outrun it. Nobody is immune from it. And maybe you've experienced that with a family member or a friend. I mean, they were here yesterday and today they're gone. And these are reminders that we have limited time, that that time does not go on forever. Now, here's the thing. I, I know for us, as Christians, like I've been there where it's going like, I need to talk to this person, but we're nervous about the conversation, how it will go when we share our faith. We're going like, man, if it goes wrong, they might kind of reject me and I might, I might mess it up and it's like, it will be my fault. And so we're going like, I'm going to wait for the right time to come along and we'll, the moment will be perfect and I'll share my faith with them. 
Well, we always think we have more time, but reality is we, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. I remember, like, just one of the friends that I had in high school diagnosed with a brain tumor, and then, like, a week later, gone. Again, just one of these sobering reminders that life does not go on forever. We never know what will happen. So my encouragement is this. Maybe you know there's somebody you need to have a conversation with, and you're just kind of like, let's wait for the right time. Don't wait for the right time to come. Maybe it's time to put a date kind of on the calendar to to talk to them. Maybe you're the person where you you hear the invitation every week, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and you're like, someday. I, I would say, why put it off when we don't know what tomorrow holds? If we know who Christ is, maybe today is the day you accept Christ as your Savior. The final thing I want to look at is this. That Jesus teaches in this is that the Scriptures are entirely sufficient to bring us to repentance. Like for the first time, probably in a very long time, the rich man shows concern for other people. He believes that if Lazarus comes back from the dead, talks to his brothers, they're going to repent and live their lives in such a way that they're not going to end up where he is. And the rich man is is going like, send Lazarus to tell them how bad this place is. And his logic, it seems pretty, pretty solid. It's like, man, you send a dead guy back. He's got, let's just freak people out. Like, be like, I don't want to go there. Like, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes not to go to Hades or to hell. And this has kind of been a tactic the church has used for, for a long time, an evangelism strategy that if we tell them about the flames, they'll become a Christian. Like, turn or burn. Now, what does Lazarus or Abraham say about that? It's, going, it's not going to work. You can tell them. Lazarus could go back, but it's not going to work. Like only a few weeks after Jesus tells this story in Luke 16, he goes to a place called Bethany. And he, he walks up to the tomb of a man who has been in the, uh, the grave for four days, dead for four days. Anybody know what that man's name is? Lazarus. And he walks up to the tomb, he says, roll back the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And most of us would go, like, anybody who's there is like, uh, it stinks, he's dead. <laughs> like, he's not coming out. But Lazarus obeys and he comes out and, and Jesus sends this clear message. Man, he has authority, he has power over death. He brought a dead man back to life. Now he does this as a clear sign like, th- that his opponents, the, the religious elite are kind of going like, he sends it. Man, this, this is not a normal guy. He's got some power and authority. And when they see the evidence there, do they go, man, maybe this, this Jesus guy is legit. Maybe we should turn and, and believe and have faith that he's the Messiah. Is this what they do? Well, John chapter 12, verse 9, it says, When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. And so these religious leaders, they, they continue to be stubborn. They're, they're hard-hearted. Like the evidence is right there. Jesus has brought a guy back from the dead and instead of going, maybe, maybe we should believe, they're going, Lazarus, this guy that Jesus brought back from the dead, he's bad for business. Let's kill the evidence. Let's get rid of it. 
And with this, Jesus shows us that faith is not necessarily created by displays of miraculous power. He, he says it, and then he demonstrates that even a person coming back from the dead is not going to create a saving faith or, or cause people to accept the testimony of Scripture that he is the Messiah. And so a skeptic will always find a reason to remain skeptical if they want to. They'll find a way to discount the evidence if they really want. And by saying that the brothers have Moses and the prophets, Jesus is emphasizing the the importance of having a faith that is solidly built upon Scripture and not upon miraculous events. Now, let me say this. Like, I'm not saying we don't pray for healing. I'm not saying we don't pray for deliverance or any of those things. But I'm saying our faith should not be built upon those things. They can be encouragements to our faith, but that's not what should be the basis of our faith. Like some of us have built our, our faith on spiritual mountaintop experiences. Like maybe you were at camp and that's where you were saved. It's like, ah, God is so good. He's amazing. Ah, oh, look what, what he does. Or he does something amazing. And you're like, I love God. But then you come down off that mountaintop. You get into a valley. And because it was based off a spiritual mountaintop, you're going, oh, I don't know about God. Is he? Is he great? And when our our relationship and our faith is based upon kind of these things, events, it leaves our faith vulnerable to our feelings. The truth of of who God is is kind of dictated by how we're feeling in the moment. That, or if somebody comes along and maybe like they can manipulate us a little bit and they can lead us into something that is false. And so this is why Jesus is saying, have your faith built upon the truth of Scripture because that's not going to change. That's going to be constant. This is why we say, let's memorize it. Let's read it. Let's study it. Find the truth. I mean, if you're a skeptic, I would say, like, try to prove God's word wrong. Like, go ahead. Do your best. God's not really worried if you do that because he's going, you examine it, you're going to find the truth, and it's going to change you. The refusal to repent and the corresponding refusal to believe the gospel, it's not primarily due to a lack of evidence, but to a hardened heart. The problem is not that the evidence is not there. It's that we choose to overlook what it points to because we would rather believe something else that fits with what we want. And so here's here's what I'm kind of going to. As a church, let's not tell people, here's what you need to run away from because that's not going to create a lasting faith and life change. Like, fear doesn't typically change to the life that God, or create this faith that God wants. We need to show them who they're running to. Mark Clark, he says this, the only way to truly walk away from our sin and the things that land us in hell is by finding something you love more than those things. A new love that trumps the old is the only thing with enough power to unhinge you from the sin that so easily entangles. And Luke is is saying this, that the prophets, Moses, they all point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. Luke 24, verse uh, 27 says, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now here's, here's what happens when you study scripture. You're going to see that we're not saved by what we do. That keeping the rules and all the commands, that's impossible to do that. But what scripture will show us is the heart of God. It shows us that God sent his son into the world to live the life that we couldn't live. He died on the cross, but he rose again, conquering sin and death and freeing us from his wrath, even hell itself. It shows us that Jesus saves us. He makes us right with God. It shows us God's heart. We see that he loves us and that he's doing everything necessary 
so that we can be with him forever. The question we haven't asked yet is this, though. What lands the rich man in Hades? What, what is his sin? He had not ordered Lazarus to get off his step. He had no issue with Lazarus eating out of, off the floor. He wasn't deliberately cruel to Lazarus, as far as we know, and that he kicks him every time he goes past. His sin, though, is that he accepted Lazarus as a part of the natural landscape. He's all right with Lazarus laying there in pain, poverty, vulnerability, and on we could go while he lives his life in luxury. It's not what he did. It's what he did not do. He did nothing, and that was his sin. And Jesus' story is this warning that's like, man, that type of attitude, that has no place in his kingdom. It has no place to, to ignore the needs of others. Now, right now, we're living in scene one. But part of what Jesus is saying is this. Don't live right now as if right now is all that there is. At some point, there will be a scene transition taking place where his kingdom will come in all its fullness. That scene one, it has an ending. Scene two, it goes on forever. And so here's the question we need to ask. Which scene am I living for? When that scene transition takes place, Will my best days be before me, or are they going to be behind me? And much, what, much of what Jesus is teaching in these three chapters is about how citizens of his kingdom will live in scene one as they wait for scene two. And this is the only story where Jesus gives a name to one of his characters. And many scholars say it's probably because he's personalizing his care for the poor. In James chapter one, verse 27 It says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows, those who are poor, those who are vulnerable, those who are oppressed in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Jonathan Edwards, he he said that God has designated the poor as his receivers, that as Christians, there's nothing that we can do that actually will profit God directly. But instead, God has designated the poor to be his receivers, that they will be those who receive Christian love. So as a church, here's what I want us to do. As we go about our days, let's notice the brokenness in our community, in our world, in our city, but let's not accept that as, well, this is the way that it has to be. Let's endeavor to change it. Let's bring as much of the kingdom of heaven to earth as we can right now by sharing what God has given to us with those in need. Like tastes of heaven, you don't have to wait till scene two to experience those things. That God has given us many good things so that we can bring these samples of heaven to the poor, to the powerless, to the sick, to the hungry, to the desperate, to show them, you know what, your scene two doesn't have to look like your scene one did. And so who is at your door? Who has God placed in your life? Who do you see every day that you could help? And the way that you live can soften up a person's heart. It can till the soil of their heart so that they might be ready to accept the testimony of Scripture and what it says about Jesus. Let's pray.